0: Hello and welcome to An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. We explore the Book of Mormon with the assumption that science worked the same then as it does now and that the characters are real people with the same types of feelings and tendencies as you and me today. The views and opinions expressed here are strictly those of the narrator and should not be considered official interpretations in any way. And now An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. Hello, and welcome back. In our last video, Alma was so bothered by the pride of the Nephites that he stepped down as chief judge so that instead of working as a government official, he could go among them and influence them directly. And we'll be talking about that today as we cover his travels in Alma chapters 6, 7, and 8. But first, we need to answer last week's trivia question. What is the name of the city that rejected the prophet Alma? The city that rejected Alma in chapter 8 is Ammonihah, and we'll cover that before today's video ends. We should talk about geography for a minute just to make it easier to visualize what's going on. Also, later on in the book of Alma, understanding how the cities are positioned relative to each other will help us understand what happens better. I'm not sure that this map is completely accurate, but it does a good job showing the relative locations of the cities that we'll be talking about today. Alma began his preaching in the capital city of Zarahemla. From there, he crossed the river Sidon and traveled east to Gideon. Then he returned home to Zarahemla. If Alma had to, quote, labor with his own hands for his support, as he will say in Alma chapter 30, it makes sense that he'd need to spend some time at home to do that. This is purely speculation, but maybe he did his preaching during times when he wasn't able to farm during the winter, for example. So he crossed back over the river Sidon and returned home to Zarahemla. Then the following year, he went west to the land of Melech by the borders of the wilderness. From there, he went three days journey, as it says, on the north of the land of Melech and came to the land of Ammonihah. Believe it or not, the location of the city of Ammonihah will become relevant a little later on in the book of Alma. That's a quick geographic summary. Now back to the book. After Alma finished teaching in Zarahemla, he ordained priests and elders to watch over the people. Non-members who repented of their sins were baptized, and members who were lifted up in pride and refused to repent were removed from the church's records. However, Alma makes it clear that they were not deliberately rejected or excluded. In verse 5, Now I would that ye should understand that the Word of God was liberal unto all, that none were deprived of the privilege of assembling themselves together to hear the Word of God. Members were commanded to join in fasting and mighty prayer in behalf of the souls of all those who knew not God. Because Alma's activities at Zarahemla, after he finished preaching, are summarized in chapter 6, which is a really pretty short chapter, We might assume that he wasn't there for very long, but later chapters indicate that Zarahemla had been in a pretty sad state and it took a substantial amount of time and effort to get them back on track. Then, having reorganized and re-energized the church in Zarahemla, Alma moved on to the city of Gideon. Alma 7 contains Alma's sermon to the people of Gideon. He acknowledged that he was visiting the land of Gideon for the first time. He uses a surprising phrase, quote, therefore, I attempt to address you in my language, yea, by my own mouth. That might have simply been an expression or idiom that meant visiting them in person. But when he said, in my language, that makes it sound like people throughout the kingdom spoke different languages or dialects. We know, for example, that the people of Zarahemla spoke a different language when the Nephites first discovered them and in the video where we talked about King Benjamin's famous address to his people I suggested that translators might have been needed for some of the original people of Zarahemla doctrinally it's not important but it adds a layer of detail to the mental picture in his address Alma said he hoped that he would find the people of Gideon in a better state than the people of Zarahemla had been. He described the people in Zarahemla as having been in, quote, an awful dilemma before his preaching. But he rejoiced that they were now established again in the way of God's righteousness. And he hoped that he would have similar cause to rejoice in Gideon, but without first having to, quote, wade through so much sorrow. In verse 6, he mentions idol worship. He says, I trust that ye are not lifted up in the pride of your hearts, yea, I trust that ye have not set your hearts upon riches and the vain things of the world, yea, I trust that you do not worship idols, but that ye do worship the true and the living God. Idol worship is mentioned a handful of times throughout the Book of Mormon, which makes me wonder whether idolatry is simply another term for materialism, or if the Nephites really worshipped statues, as the literal meaning of the term would imply. A few hundred years later, in Mormon 4.21, we will read of women and children being sacrificed unto idols, which implies a literal translation. However, in most cases, the meaning is more ambiguous. Lamanites are described in Mosiah 9.12 as a lazy and an idolatrous people. King Noah's people in Mosiah chapter 11, verses 6 and 7, quote, also became idolatrous because of the teachings of Noah and his priests, even though they claimed to teach the law of Moses. I was quite surprised to read that the same Alma who was speaking to Gideon was described in his wayward younger days as, quote, a very wicked and an idolatrous man in Mosiah 27, 8. In my opinion, it's probably safe to assume that no one on Lehi's original boat from Jerusalem worshipped idols in the traditional sense, bowing down to statues or thinking that a graven image was responsible for their prosperity. It's especially hard to imagine a man as brilliant as Alma giving a carved statue credit for his success, especially when he had not been raised with that tradition. Later, in Helaman 631, We will read about Nephites who, quote, did build up under themselves idols of their gold and silver. And it made me wonder, if a Nephite prospered and had a lot of gold, what would they do with it? Especially if they wanted to accumulate gold so that they could make a big purchase later on, for example. I doubt that they could deposit gold in a bank. Who knows, maybe they made it into statues and ornamental images and spent their time fawning over these symbols of their wealth. Also, because idol worship seems so common in primitive cultures, I wonder whether idolatry is a natural result of a basic human tendency that we all have to search for cause and effect explanations. When someone does not believe in God, but still has that human mental tendency to want narratives and explanations, Do they gravitate toward idols, good luck charms, superstitions? Do they embrace causes? When people leave religion, they don't stop looking for narratives and explanations. And there aren't explanations for everything, so it's interesting to see what causes people embrace when they stop believing in God. Returning to Alma's discourse, Alma gives a reminder for people like me who tend to wander into spiritual tangents. In Alma 7.7, he says, For behold, I say unto you that there be many things to come, and behold, there is one thing which is of more importance than they all. For behold, the time is not far distant, that the Redeemer liveth and cometh among his people. When I read the last four words of that verse, cometh among his people, I assumed the phrase his people, meant the jews with whom he lived but alma seemed to interpret his people to mean his followers which would mean that if the nephites were numbered among his people or his followers that he would come among them but how could he visit his followers on the far side of an ocean alma commented on that in the next verse behold i do not say that he will come among us at the time of his dwelling in his mortal tabernacle for behold The Spirit hath not said unto me that this should be the case. Now, as to this thing I do not know, but this much I do know, that the Lord hath power to do all things which are according to his word. He might not visit the Nephites during his mortal life, said Alma, but he has power to fulfill his promises. Alma was certain that if if Christ said he would come among his people, Then the Nephites, his people, could eventually expect a visit from him. Alma then told the people there was a message that he needed to deliver. Verse 9, And behold, the Spirit hath said this much unto me, saying, Cry unto this people, saying, Repent, and prepare the way of the Lord, and walk in his paths which are straight. And behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and the Son of God cometh upon the face of the earth. Some of those phrases, the kingdom of heaven is at hand and make his path straight, might sound a little familiar. They sound a lot like the phrasing that John the Baptist used in the New Testament. Compare the words we just heard to those in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1, 2, and 3. In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of the prophet Isaiah, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Alma next taught the people of Gideon about the Savior's life and ministry, beginning with his birth to Mary, and then a life of pain, affliction, and temptations of every kind. Verse 11, And he shall go forth, suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind. And this, that the word might be fulfilled, which saith, he will take upon him the pains and the sicknesses of his people. Suffering temptations of every kind is the one that surprised me. Because he didn't yield the temptations, it's easy to picture the Savior as not being tempted by anything. But the scripture suggests the opposite, that he was tempted by everything. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. So there's two things that we can learn from this. First, it means that we're not judged based on what tempts us, because the Savior was tempted in all things. Second, the Savior being tempted in all things is is a hard concept for me to wrap my head around, because people be tempted by some pretty horrific stuff was he really tempted by everything it seems that he must have been or else people who are fighting with really bizarre or twisted temptations would have no one to turn to for help but no matter how low or lost someone may become the savior can still empathize and say I get it. I completely understand. I was tempted by that as well. And here's what I did about it. How could the Savior be fair with us at the judgment bar? How could he judge us fairly if he didn't truly understand our struggles? But he did not stop at experiencing and overcoming temptations. He also, quote, "...took upon him their infirmities that his bowels might be filled with mercy that he might know, according to the flesh, how to succor his people according to their infirmities. Lastly, he underwent and overcame death, so that we could someday all rise from the dead. People have frequently said, no matter what you're going through, there's at least one person who understands. And that may be true, but maybe I'm unusual this way. If, if I break my leg... I don't take much comfort in knowing that someone else has experienced the same injury. Knowing that someone else broke their leg doesn't help my leg feel any better. But it is helpful to find someone who can tell you what to expect, how to recover, and so on. And this is also true with temptations. Knowing that someone faced a similar temptation isn't nearly as helpful as having someone who can provide guidance on how to overcome it. My hope is that this is what the scripture means by, quote, that he might know, according to the flesh, how to succor his people, that he'll know how to help us overcome whatever temptation we're facing. Verses 13 and 14 of Alma 7 address the Savior's ability to not only remove our guilt, but to remove our sinful nature. He, quote, takes upon him the sins of his people that he might blot out their transgressions. He exhorts people to be baptized, quote, that ye may be washed from your sins and to have faith on the Lamb of God, quote, who taketh away the sins of the world, who is mighty to save and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. So he doesn't just take away guilt or stain or a shameful history, but he can take away the unrighteousness itself. Alma invited his hearers to be baptized as a witness of their desire to abandon their sins and keep God's commandments. If they did this, and then kept the commandments going forward, they would have eternal life. I've heard people discussing whether focusing on, quote, the basics of the gospel is sufficient. For example, if we read our scriptures, say our prayers, perform church responsibilities, spend time with our families, and generally keep the commandments, is that enough? Or should we, per Doctrine and Covenants 58-27, be anxiously engaged in a good cause and do many things of our own free will and bring to pass much righteousness? Alma, in my opinion, provided some insight into this question, and it's one of my favorite verses. It's verse 24. And see that ye have faith, hope, and charity, and then ye will always abound in good works. This verse changes the focus from trying to think up good things to do to developing Christ-like attributes. And as we try to acquire these attributes, we'll find ourselves doing good works. Good works will abound. The scripture teaches us that, as with so many aspects of the gospel, the focus begins with changing the individual. All right, now we move to Alma chapter 8. After speaking to the people of Gideon... Alma returned to his own house at Zarahemla, like we talked about at the beginning. Then, at the beginning of the next year, he traveled to Melech. And at Melech, he was very well-received, and in fact, he was so well-received that Alma didn't even bother to tell us much about him. Here's what he does say. And it came to pass that the people came to him throughout all the borders of the land, which was by the wilderness side, and they were baptized throughout all the land. From Melech... He traveled three days north to the city of Ammonihah, where, unlike the people of Malak, the people of Ammonihah wanted nothing to do with him. Verse 9, Now Satan had gotten great hold upon the hearts of the people of the city of Ammonihah. Therefore, they would not hearken unto the words of Alma. Alma, according to the next verse, quote, "...labored much in the spirit." wrestling with God in mighty prayer that he would pour out his spirit upon the people who were in the city. The wording here resembles Enos chapter 1 verse 2 where Enos speaks of a wrestle which he had before God. What happens, I wonder, during these wrestles? Who is wrestling with whom? Does the wrestle consist of us trying to bargain with God? Does it consist of us begging? Or is the struggle all internal? Enos kind of implied that the struggle was internal by saying that his wrestle was before God, not with God. In Alma's case, Alma wanted the Lord to pour out his spirit on the people of Ammonihah so that he could baptize them under repentance as he had done in Gideon and Malak. But his desire was not granted. Instead, when he attempted to preach, the people mocked him. Alma might be the high priest, they said, But they did not follow his church's foolish traditions, so he had no religious authority over them. And perhaps he had once been the chief judge, but because he had given his judgment seat to someone else, he had no political authority. Without his political office, he was just an ordinary man giving an unpopular opinion. Verse 13, Now when the people had said this, and withstood all his words, and reviled him, and spit upon him, and caused that he should be cast out of their city, he departed thence, and took his journey towards the land which was called Aaron. As he traveled toward the land of Aaron, quote, being weighed down with much sorrow because of the wickedness of the people of Ammonihah, an angel appeared to him and told him to rejoice. Why? What did Alma have to rejoice about? The angel said Alma should rejoice because he had been faithful in keeping God's commandments since the time of his initial visit with an angel that we read about in Mosiah chapter 27. And he, the angel now speaking to Alma, said he was the same angel who had visited him initially. The angel continued in verse 16, And behold, I am sent to command thee that thou return to the city of Ammonihah and preach again unto the people of the city, Yea, say unto them, except they repent, the Lord God will destroy them. He revealed to Alma that the people of Ammonihah were planning or studying how to destroy the liberty of the members of the church. Alma reacted immediately. He returned speedily to the land of Ammonihah, which had just cast him out and entered through a different entrance. As he entered the city, He approached a man and said, Will ye give a humble servant of God something to eat? The man named Amulek revealed himself to be a Nephite and said, I know that thou art a holy prophet of God. He further revealed that he had received a vision in which an angel told him to receive Alma into his house. Alma went with the man to his house, and after eating, he introduced himself to Amulek. I am Alma, he said, and am the high priest over the church of God throughout the land. He told Amulek of his mission to preach to the people of Ammonihah. He also disclosed that he had fasted for many days. Now, I don't know whether he was fasting intentionally or if that was simply the consequence of being an unwelcome traveler, but I suspect it was intentional. Anyway, Alma spent several days with Amulek without going out to preach. It seems odd that he would delay delivering his message after, quote, returning speedily. Perhaps he was awaiting further instructions. In the meantime, the situation in Ammonihah was becoming worse. Verse 28, And it came to pass that the people did wax more gross in their iniquities. Eventually, quote, the word came to Alma that he and Amulek should prophesy to the people, telling them to repent or to face the fierce anger of the Lord. They went forth being, quote, filled with the Holy Ghost. And that's where we end today, with Alma and Amulek venturing out into the city of Ammonihah. In our next video, or possibly in our next two videos, we'll talk about their time at Ammonihah. And we will end with the trivia question. To which tribe did Nephi belong? To which of the 12 tribes of Israel did Nephi belong? Even more importantly, how do we know this? If you know the answer, what tribe he was from, and if you know how we know this, leave a comment down below. And we will see you next time.